Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to physical and sexual abuse, miscarriage, medical procedures, hysterectomies, racism, war crimes, slavery, and Nazi ideologies. It also contains some naughty language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I'm Nicola, I am six months away from being a fully qualified teacher and I've already begun teaching preps that the red teddy bears are communists. And I'm Hannah, a PhD student researching women's anti-nuclear activism in Australia to prove A, women did do things between World War II and women's liberation, and B, Australian history is more than convict Ned Kelly who rode on his glorious light horse charge through Gallipoli to save the day. It is kind of a missed opportunity we never got Heath Ledger in a World War One film. That is true. You know? That is true. Yeah. I knew someone whose dad was in the Ned Kelly movie. I had a big crush on Ned Kelly because of Heath Ledger for Aww. a while. And it's like, this is a problem. Anyway, uh, and Woman Jekka to Women of War, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss the life story of a woman involved in a war throughout time and space to understand the incredibly diverse experiences of women during times of conflict. So this week, we're going bananas. Woo! Nicola, no. Put down your banana. We're not eating it. Nicola, no. Alright. We're dancing in a dress made of them. Because we're discussing Josephine Baker, entertainer, spy and civil rights activist who famously wore a skirt made out of the potassium-rich fruit, which is handy if you want a snack, less so if you want to sit down. Please don't add a squelch sound effect to this. You ruin all my fun. Although, as I found out when I was researching, it was rubber bananas and not actual yeah, bananas, makes which makes more sense. Slightly disappointing. I do wonder what variety of banana it was, because many species of banana have been wiped out by certain diseases. I don't think she thought that far into it. I know, but I do. All right. Okay. So, Josephine Baker was born Frida Josephine McDonald on June the 3rd, 1906 in St. Louis, Missouri, to Catherine McDonald and vaudeville performer Eddie Carson. Her father wasn't around for her childhood, and Josephine grew up in an area known for its brothels where her family struggled to make ends meet. Entertaining was in her blood, though, not only from her dad, but also from her mum, who worked as a washerwoman, but also had a song and dance act. From the age of one, Josephine was on stage with her mother. So, Missouri is a complicated state. Though it had a small proportion of enslaved people at the start of the Civil War, the state was mostly neutral to, on the side, of the North, Unionists, the anti-slavery folks. If anyone tells you the American Civil War wasn't fought over slavery, they're either misinformed or a racist liar. Heavily misinformed. (laughs) There was more than one near-successful attempt to force Missouri to secede from the Union and join the Confederacy, which was the pro-slavery conglomeration of the South, though most of these attempts were put down through force. Missouri was a key state as it was on the border between the pro-slavery Confederates who lost the Civil War and the Unionists who won it. The city of St. Louis was a key hub in the area and so a lot of the fighting in and around Missouri was for control of this port. But, long story short, because we're here to talk about Josephine in World War II, the South lost the North one. Anyone with a passing knowledge of American history, however, knows that the legacy of slavery and institutionalised racism didn't end with the end of the Civil War. Even today, Missouri is an incredibly dangerous state to be a black person in, and in 2014, a city in Missouri, Ferguson, was rocked by protests when a young, unarmed black man, Michael Brown, was shot six times by a police officer on suspicion of stealing a pack of cigars. The heavy... I know, it's just one of the things, it's like, people are like, oh, you know, they don't know if he has a gun or not, and it's like, let him run, it's a packet of fucking cigars. It doesn't matter. Even if it was something else. It doesn't... It doesn't matter. Yeah, like, 
anyway. The heavily militarised and violent response to these protests saw international condemnation of the city's law enforcement. The police officer in question was not charged for the shooting of Michael Brown. Josephine grew up during a period of intense segregation in St. Louis. On a national level, segregation was legal under the Plessy v. Ferguson ruling. In 1896, the Supreme Court made the decision that as long as the separate facilities presented for black people to use were of the same quality as those presented for whites to use, it was okay Mm. to have separate facilities. Um, This was um, brought in after a partially black man deliberately violated um, rules in Louisiana to use a whites-only railway car. Um, Plessy v. This is called separate but equal basically. And mm-hmm. as we all know, though, it wasn't actually equal. No. No, nowhere near. Plessy versus Ferguson only legitimised many racist and segregationist laws that had sprung up, especially across the South. Following the end of the Civil War, Lincoln's assassination, assassination, and the subsequent failures of Reconstruction. These laws would only be struck down in part by the 1954 Brown vs. Board of Education case, which desegregated public high schools in the United States, and various acts signed by President Johnson in 1964, 1965, and 1968 in response to the civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and others. Segregationist practices remain common in the South. So how did this affect those in Missouri, mainly Josephine and her family? Well, in 1916, St. Louisianans voted for a city ordinance that prohibited anybody from buying a home in an area 75% occupied by another race. Such ordinances were eventually overturned by the Supreme Court in 1917 after extensive lobbying from the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, NAACP, but white homeowners continued to informally enforce such rules, asking families to sign a contract vowing they would never sell to a black family, a practice that wasn't made illegal until 1948, and you can bloody well bet it remained a thing Mm -hmm. probably even today. Yeah, 100%. All across the South, Jim Crow laws, which enforced racial segregation, came into effect in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Some border states, like Missouri, also enacted laws to enforce racial segregation, including in schools and marriages. The ban on interracial marriage came to an end in 1967 with the case of Loving versus Virginia. Have you heard about that case? I haven't, but I I enjoyed the name. It's beautiful because it was um, Richard and Mildred Loving, and he was a white man and she was a black woman. A very appropriate name for this case. I know, it's just like peak yeah. kind of thing. And they were a very quiet, very reserved couple mm-hmm. who just wanted to be married. And they went to a different state than mm-hmm. Virginia to get married, because Virginia, home of Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. Yeah. Quite it was right. like before marriage equality in Australia, people would go overseas to get married. Yeah. Uh, and actually, Loving versus Virginia was used as precedent in the decision in the United States that made same-sex mm. marriage legal as well. But that case has a less good name. It's like a Germanish name. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, can't remember that one. Um, I taught a lot about this period of American history. So that's why I'm like... Yes. But I'm only like at a year eleven level. <laughs> you get all, but year eleven level, you get all the key points. You get all the key points. Not enough yeah. Malcolm X, in my opinion. Yeah. So I put him in. Yeah. Yeah. So back to Josephine. In the pre-YouTube age, performing babies wasn't a massive money spinner, and you couldn't have a mummy blog talking about all the wonderful things your baby did. I couldn't adopt this baby from Thailand because they don't let you put them on camera. Like, ew! Why would you want a baby? You can take <laughs> photos of. Gross. So, by the age of eight, Josephine was working in domestic service for white families. Because she was working to earn money so her family could eat, Josephine rarely had time for school and soon dropped out by the time she was 12. She married for the first time a year later, at age 13, to Willie Wells. I don't like that. Which, like, so it wasn't legally a marriage, obviously, and they were, quote-unquote, divorced two weeks later. How old was he? 
I don't know. I couldn't find any information about him. Hopefully he was around In my age. head, he's the same age as yeah. her, and I'm going with that, and I'm sticking with that, and if anyone knows the truth, don't tell me. Like, there's so much <laughs> awful in this one. It's just like, you know what? Let's just go with that, and they're a cute little pair, and that's fine. So, whenever... So, the marriage didn't last. Whenever Josephine was unable to find work in domestic service, she would take to dancing in the street for money, which soon brought her to the attention of an African-American travelling theatre troupe. Her experiences in domestic service had been... As you could probably guess, not great. And Josephine's employers would often physically or sexually abuse her, so it's no wonder that 15-year-old Josephine ran away with the troupe. It was while performing with this troupe that Josephine met and married her second husband, Will Baker, she likes Wills, in 1921 at the age of 15. This marriage also ended soon afterwards, but Josephine kept the surname Baker for the rest of her life. Performing in vaudeville shows, Josephine began to really hit her stride. Vaudeville was an incredibly popular style of show in the early 20th century with its combination of comedy, burlesque, singing and dancing. Eventually, Josephine moved to New York, in New York, where she was New York, part, New York, uh, it's a hell of a town. The schoolyard's up and the shopping mall's <laughs> down, where she was part of the Harlem Renaissance. As part of the Great Migration from the South to the North in the early 20th century, around 175,000 African Americans moved to Harlem in Manhattan. So as Harlem is roughly three square miles in size... What the fuck is that? I really hope our American listeners appreciate Imperial Measurement there because three square miles in square kilometres is a nonsense number. Shout out to our listener in Colorado. Hey! What's up? Um, I did Google it. Don't Google it. It's just like six point... B- 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 so it's nonsense. How many Olympic-sized swimming pools is that? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it's pretty relatively small. Um... But so, because it's so small, the massive influx of African Americans meant that actually at this time the neighbourhood had the highest concentration of black people in the world per square mile. Cool. Which is pretty impressive. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Unless I'm sure the conditions weren't great. No. But among these 175 people were many black scholars, artists, and performers. And so, between the end of World War I and the Great Depression in the late 1920s, early 1930s, there was an explosion of black cultural expression across the board. From writing, to painting and sculpture, to jazz music, to opera, and, in Josephine's case, to dance. Also, better opera than that. Thanks, Nicola. Across these various mediums was the common theme of what it meant to be black in America. Not only did the Harlem Renaissance bring African-American art and culture to a broader audience, particularly globally, but it also was a pivotal moment in black activism. Because it's the first time they've all sort of been able to come together and concentrate and be safe in that area. Yeah, and make this huge, like, culture of, like, this is who we are. There's actually a mini parallel in Australia about that as well, mm-hmm. in Victoria, I think, um, because when they closed all the reservations mm-hmm. that were the homes for Indigenous people for a long time, a lot of them migrated into Melbourne, into Fitzroy yep. and the surrounds, and that's why there's that really historically rich place in Mm -hmm. Fitzroy in the middle of Melbourne for Indigenous people and it still is today. One of the earliest black musical reviews which would become incredibly popular in the mid-1920s was Shuffle Along by Yumi Blake and Noble Sissel. This was where Josephine's career really launched. Though Josephine was only a chorus girl, when on stage she acted clumsy and over the top. Audiences loved her comedic routine. Shuffle Along was the first all-black Broadway show created and performed, that is, and was a runaway hit on Broadway. But though the Harlem Renaissance was a vibrant moment in African-American history, segregation was there to stay for a while longer and Josephine was sick of all the discrimination she faced. So when she was offered a place in an all-black review in Paris, which did not have widespread racial segregation, at least of the legal kind, she jumped at the chance. The difference was immediately felt when the cast boarded a French train and were able to sit wherever they liked. 
Josephine arrived in Paris in 1925 when she was 19 and was soon made the star of La Revue Negri, a show from a white socialite who wanted to bring, quote, authentic black American culture, end quote, to Europe. White Europeans were fascinated by jazz and jazz. African art, and there was a persistent exoticization of black people. So things haven't really changed much in that regard. This was a period of, quote, negrophilia. <gasps> and I just don't think you could have a worse name for it if you tried. Hot and Tot Venus, I think, is that mm. one human case to me where I'm like, I literally need to walk away when I'm reading about that because mm -hmm. it's too much. Yep. So this word, it describes the very appropriative French exoticization of black culture, black art, and black performers in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, so this is from sort of a combination of so-called trophies from European colonisation. So they brought back all these lovely artefacts they found when they were subduing all the people in their land. It was just there and I grabbed it. Um, as well as the black American soldiers um, that we mentioned earlier who'd found greater freedoms in France and so kind of stayed. And then also there was the cultural um, impact of the Harlem Renaissance around the world. So all that drove this fascination. Josephine was initially wary of the costumes she was provided, uh, which were a bit skimpy, to say the least, but after her first performance... <laughs> like if they were just banana peels or a bit skinny! <laughs> after her first performance, she realised that this sort of dancing, like the erotic, sensual, suggestive sort of dancing, was her thing, and she was actually really good at it. So, like, she's really Matahari and Edith Piaf's love child, I feel like honestly. She's Edith Piaf's, like aren't because it would go Matahari, Josephine, Edith Piaf. No, Edith Piaf and Josephine are chilling at the same time. I know, but like in this context, because Edith Piaf wasn't really doing much in the 20s, was she? I wrote the episode. You, oh yeah, I I'm like, why are you asking this? me? You I don't know, know more about her. I believe Edith Piaf and Josephine are sisters. They're yes. not children. She's not parents. They're That's sisters. true. In, it's in my head because we did Edith Piaf earlier. Like, yeah. So she came first in my head, even though Josephine and Edith were doing it. I guess Mata Hari is there's a lot of parallels there between this exoticization yep. and orientalization. Exactly. Orientalization. Yep. Orientalism. I'm so sorry, Edward Said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's what struck me the most. It was sort of like this using that kind of these images, even though Mata Hari was white. She was Dutch. Yeah. She was Dutch. She was hella Dutch. But it's still kind of using those ideas. So mm. Josephine quickly received widespread acclaim for her performances and she became the most successful entertainer in France and, and possibly the richest black woman alive at this point, Woo! which is very impressive. What about that lady? I know what I'm thinking of, but we'll worry about it later. <laughs> so she threw herself into life in France and learnt not only how to speak French, but also Italian and Russian, which are skills that I'm sure would never, ever come in handy in her life. What about Italian, though? You'd think of, like, German. Yeah, but Italian, uh, Ital Italian is Italian. Italy's nearby as well, so yeah. The audiences at her shows were mostly white, but Baker drew on African themes and styles in ways we might not quite understand or like today, because they seemed to modern audience to replicate racial stereotypes. Her most famous dance, which we've alluded to, was the banana dance or the dance sauvage. I can tell you, sauvage doesn't translate to banana. <laughs> <laughs> Where she wore a skirt made of rubber bananas and not much else. She wore some beaded necklaces. I think it was kind of hard to figure out because sources can contradict each other. She probably had different costumes. The, yeah, the dance sauvage was kind of the style of the dance, and initially she did it in like feathers and stuff, mm. and then later on she started doing it in the banana costume, and so that's when like the two became part of the same oh, yeah. thing, and so like the banana dance was a version of her dance sauvage. That's cool. Her dance style, where she moved all parts of her body, 
was unique and magnetizing to audience used to strictly choreographed dances. Her banana dance made her a runaway star with plenty of merch for people to I buy, including dolls of banana skirts <laughs> and postcards of Josephine in her banana skirt. The dance, which is on YouTube, seems to play into harmful stereotypes of primitive black people. Primitive with air quotes, by the way. Um, yet in much the same way that marginalised groups have reclaimed slurs and ideas used against them, Josephine's dance was an act of resistance or even reclamation. Mm-hmm. I definitely recommend you look at it. It's really interesting. Like, the clip you can see is... We'll put it on the Twitter. Yeah, we'll put it on the Twitter, yes. It's very interesting, Josephine wearing a banana skirt and sort of like... she is like a quote-unquote African set, Like an ethnic dance. Yeah, and it's sort of her kind of climbing down this tree. Oh, no. Like, it's really... (laughs) You know, so to us, you watch it now and you're like... "Mm." It's also... But... It doesn't help that they're on these creepy old films because that also makes people look a lot weirder and like yeah. it's not it's mostly the dance itself yeah in the same way i've looked at footage of men recovering from shell shock through mm. electrosurgery electrosurgery electroshock electroshock and it's already creepy and then because you've got this weird silent flat mm. jumpy film it also just looks somehow worse and yeah. you feel more perverted watching it yeah so it's, yeah. it's a really interesting thing like to us it makes no sense but it, it really was this kind of act of reclamation yeah and like she's making money off it yeah so exactly. like power to her yeah Josephine reveled in the spotlight and took to the bohemian, adventurous, energetic and lit, lit atmosphere of Paris in the 1920s. We love the Russian ballet! (laughs) (laughs) This was the Anais Polis age, sorry Evelyn, or Ah. the quote crazy years of France, which is like the jazz age in the US, but with even more art, culture, parties, alcohol and sex. Legal alcohol too. Yeah, no so prohibition America here. had legal racism but illegal booze, and France <laughs> had no legal racism and legal booze. That was funnier in my head. Someone has priorities in the right order. Oui. After World War I, the world had to decide how to function again, and the 1920s was characterised by new ideas. In France, after the difficulty they faced during the war, there was a sense of sort of life could be over at any moment, so just let's make the most Mm. of it. Go wild. So the intellectuals, the artists, and the upper class let loose Gatsby style, and Josephine was right at the centre of it. Because, of course, poor people can't do this. No. They need to eat. But Josephine was among it all in the Annes Follaise of Paris. Josephine is now seen as one of the central figures of the Annes Folles. I'm saying they're different every time, but who cares? Sorry, Emily. it's not hard to see why. Not only did her show and costumes fit into both the necrophilia and... Necrophilia? Mm. I wish it was necrophilia. You can justify see, that, see, at least. when that's the better word option, I know. you know you've you know used you the wrong fucked word. up. Necrophilia rather than necrophilia. Oh, God. We're not going to make merch out of that. No. And carefree atmosphere of the time, but Josephine opened her own nightclub, Chez Josephine, in the Rue Fontaine. She ap- I wonder how close this was to where Edith Piaf would be performing. We should have mapped yeah, that out. we should have mapped that. I'll look it up. She appeared on stage and in films and did not shy away from living a life free of the constraints of her earlier years. She loved her time practicing on the rooftop of the music hall de Champs-Élysées, which she described as an intoxication... I don't know how special French accent Yeah, she's then. not French. Yeah. She's American. Which she described as, quote, an intoxication to dance in the sun with practically nothing on, end quote. I miss living in the bush. I used to do that. She was excited to see people kissing in the streets and the women wearing little or no clothing, which prompted her to immediately buy pictures <laughs> of naked women, just like the Anzacs when they arrived in Egypt. Josephine was unashamed of her bisexuality, put a pin in that, and engaged enthusiastically in sex with both men and women. She might also have engaged in orgies. She... 
Let's not even put a might there. It's Look, Paris. I mean, you can't prove it. There's no definite This evidence. is my question. How many people does it take to make an orgy? Hi, kids. I hope you're not listening to this one. <laughs> Let's not recommend this to the students. Because <laughs> it's like you got a threesome, mm. you got a foursome. Mm. I think then it's like five or more. I feel like that's the definition. It's like what counts as a mass shooting? Anyway. Yeah. Um, she might have Very also- different. <laughs> very different things to compare there. Shooting out different things. She might also have engaged in orgies and she definitely could be found climbing her stage manager like a tree backstage between acts at the Casino de Paris. Apparently ah. he was a very fit English bloke. Nice. Josephine went on tour around Europe in 1928, starting in Vienna. Her arrival in Vienna, however, was a bit different to her arrival in Paris. Political unrest was already building. Mein Kampf had been published in 1925 and it was growing in popularity. I heard that author was such a loser. (laughs) He really was. Couldn't even paint. The racist ideologies it promoted fed into other tensions, and so before Josephine had even arrived in Vienna, people were already protesting her performance. Posters calling her a, quote, black devil, end quote, were put up around the city, and protesters lined the streets as she drove to her hotel, reminding her of race riots from her childhood. Elsewhere in Europe, fascists would cry, go back to Africa, at her performances. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, Josephine did return to America. Not Africa, where she'd ever been. Put a pin in that. Um, so she briefly returned in the late 1930s to the US to tour, but she received poor reviews and she was appalled at the continuing racial injustices. These must have seemed even more extreme now she lived in Paris, where it was less overt. In one instance, she was horrified that her white backup dancers were forbidden from touching her during a performance and she was verbally abused and insulted by other white performances. Performers. Performers. Oh, sorry. She returned to France and married Jewish Frenchman Jean Leon. In 1937, she became a French citizen. There is no doubt that her choice to move back to Paris helped her career enormously. Although France in the 1930s and 40s was not immune to racism, it was miles ahead of the segregationist South where she had come from. Between 1927 and 1940, Josephine starred in four feature films as the leading lady. These films definitely played into stereotypes, but at the same time, the fact that Josephine, a black woman, was the lead was huge. She was also the first um, black woman to play a lead in a major motion picture. Um, In comparison, in America, black female actors like Hattie McDaniel, who won an Oscar, were relegated to maids and slaves in films like Gone with the Wind, and she wasn't allowed to sit with the white nominees during the Oscars. Yep, and she had to go in a different door. Wonderful. So it's just kind of showing the big difference that... So the the films Josephine was in, you look up the plots on Wikipedia, Mm. they're a bit iffy. I looked up the, the Siren of the Tropics, and it's like... Oh, no, but again, it's but a context thing. It's a context thing, and the fact that she was cast as a lead, in some of them she was the romantic lead, which yeah, is massive. That's huge. And like this is the same period they've got people playing in blackface constantly. Yeah. Like, the first film with sound was The Jazz Singer, yep. which could be on Hey Hey It's Saturday, because it's got blackface. So, like, if she'd stayed in America, there's no doubt her career would not have taken the same trajectory as it did her going to France. I'm making a gesture here, like, yeah, I agree with you. So... You all know what happened next. Germany invaded Poland. Oh, no! And so France declared war on Germany in 1939. This can only end well. That was meant to be French. That was German. Let this can only end well. Josephine was proud of her adopted country, and so when an opportunity to help the French war if it came along, she jumped at the chance. Early in the war, Josephine was approached by our old favourite from our first episode, Woo! the Deuxième Bureau, Yay! or the French Secret Service. Jacques Abti, the head of military intelligence, was hunting for possible spies, and someone suggested Josephine as a candidate. They clearly fired the guy who hired Matahari. 
So Jacques went to her neo-Gothic chateau in the bougie Parisian suburb of Le Vezinet. He later recalled their first meeting when Josephine appeared out of the bushes wearing an old hat and holding a rusted can full of snails <laughs> she was going to give her ducks. So basically, I am Josephine. You are Josephine. Uh-huh. Can you please take off the banana skirt and put something decent on now? I'm sorry. Are you cold? No, I've got the heater on. It's okay. Oh, okay. Like I wanted to. It's like method acting. It's method podcasting. Okay. Love it. Jacques offered her the spying gig, and she immediately agreed to do it, saying, "France, quote, France made me what I am. The Parisians gave me their hearts, and I am ready to give them my life." End quote. She later recalled that not only was it her love for France that prompted her decision, but also her hatred of injustice and discrimination, which she, she had seen firsthand being fanned by the fascist ideologies of Nazi Germany, which by this time had also taken a big chunk and eaten Austria. So Josephine began her life as a spy. She began by going to parties at the Italian and Japanese embassies with the aim of using her fame and allure to seduce secrets about possible Axis countries who would join the war on the side of Germany. I mean, she was right about the Italians for about 10 minutes. Yeah. She was convinced her fame would protect her from any suspicion and so wrote things down she'd heard on the palms of her hands and on her arms under her sleeves. Today I learned I am Josephine. <laughs> <laughs> you would do that. Emperor Hirohito to join Nazis. <laughs> Um, later on, she, Jax found out that's how she was doing it. And he's like, that's a bad idea. Can you at least use, like, and, your legs And she went, who would dare undress Josephine Baker to her skin? In the early months of the war, Josephine also continued to perform in Paris nightly. Like Edith Biaf, pretty much. On top of this, she would go to homeless shelters to comfort refugees fleeing the advancing German forces and would sing on the radio for soldiers on the front. <laughs> Just thinking of you, like, wow, I'd really love a banana, Miss Josephine. <laughs> She's like, I'm sorry, they're plastic. <laughs> oh, rubber. <laughs> oh, okay then. Okay. <laughs> at one point she changed the banana... At one point she changed the bananas for, like, jewel-encrusted fake ones, so I'm imagining her going to the refugees Fabergé bananas. in that costume. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, would you like a jewel-encrusted banana instead? So, it was also during this time that Josephine began an affair with Frida Kahlo. Now, I've written in the notes, this line came as a punch to the face. Mostly because we mentioned one of Frida Kahlo's other lovers in our last episode, who was Leon Trotsky. So, just the idea of, like, <laughs> this triangle... And also a triangle, because it was, like, an open... You mm. know, they're all fucking each other at this point. It's oh, Paris. this cannot be her by my students. <laughs> <laughs> just Leon Trotsky, Josephine Baker, Frida Kahlo. <laughs> That's a bang brothership I really want to see. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> I'm so upset by this in the best possible way. I think it's amazing. I'm just having such complicated feelings about it. It's like, it's like when you find out when you're in school, like teachers are friends with each other. It's like that. It's like all these famous people that you don't think are connected at all. A banging. So what happened in June 1940, Hannah? So, <laughs> Josephine began an affair with Frida Kahlo. What? But that... No, all right. <laughs> but in June 1940, France fell to the Germans. Less fun. Which began... <laughs> this was widely regarded as a bad move. <laughs> so that began the four-year Nazi occupation of France. Once upon a time in Nazi-occupied France. So for more on how and why this happened, listen to our episode on Edith Piaf. Uh, because she was, as we have mentioned, also performing and singing in Paris during this time. She stayed in the occupation, spoiler alert for Josephine, um, and there is more context there. So, Jacques, 
who Josephine was also possibly banging by this point, insisted that she flee Paris, and so she took her possessions, including a gold piano and a bed that belonged to Marie Antoinette, to a chateau 300 miles away. She also took with her refugees and members of the French resistance. Allo, allo! So the piano and the bed seem like very devery behaviour and completely ridiculous when fleeing the Nazis, but there's an argument that this very over-the-top, ostentatious type of luggage was actually a way to divert suspicion. Like, what self-respecting spy would travel with a gold piano <laughs> and a historically significant bed is what a Nazi might ask himself. I feel like I would ask myself that same Anyone question. Anyone would ask himself. And themselves. I'm not a Nazi. No one's going to be like, ah, yes, this must be the spy. They have a gold piano. At the Chateau, which happened to be in the collaborationist Vichy French area... More on that in a sec. Josephine continued to house French resistance agents and provide them with visas. The Nazis, despite the gold piano... <laughs> Josephine's just Liberace, but black. <laughs> ...became suspicious. <laughs> Nazi officials visited the estate where several resistance members were currently in hiding. Josephine, being Josephine, charmed the Nazis out of looking too hard, and so the crisis was averted, but it was too close for comfort. Josephine needed to get out of France, and so on the orders of Charles de Gaulle, Jacques, who was her Dujamé bureau manager dude, and Josephine embarked on a tour with a purpose. Her fame gave her the perfect excuse to travel to neutral countries, like Mata Hari and Edith Piaf. They were to head to London, where the free French government were continuing the fight against the Nazis. I'm so sorry. All of the UK. I'm not. Fucking leave the EU. What the fuck was wrong with you? When it was clear that France was about to fall to the Nazis in June 1940, the Prime Minister retired and Marshal Philip Pétain took the role, immediately signing an armistice with the Nazis. Pétain fucked up. Pétain... (laughs) This was widely regarded as a bad move. (laughs) Pétain took the French government to Vichy, which would lead to the regime's common name, Vichy France. Once upon a time in Vichy France. The Vichy French government joined with Axis forces. In contrast to this, the Free French was a sort of rival government of France, led by General Charles de Gaulle, he of airport fame, who fled France days before it fell and was now living in exile in Britain. From their headquarters in London, the Free French continued to act as an allied power, organising and aiding the French resistance still in France and in French colonies in Africa. Initially, the Free French forces were mainly French troops who had been in England, French civilians who had already been living in England and who volunteered, and a few units of the French Navy. Not the ones at um, Toulon in the end, I'm assuming. Little uh, scuttling joke for you there. So this was where Josephine and Jacques were added, London, to see the free French. The reason they gave for leaving France, however, was couldn't be that they were taking Nazi secrets to the free French government in enemy number one, jolly old England. So Josephine said she was going on a South American tour and taking her ballet master, Jacques, with her. I just want to see this moment in a film. Like, I don't know what Jacques looked like. But in my head, he is big, buff. I'm picturing Inspector massive, Clouseau. Yeah, pretty much. Massive mustache. And so I just want to see the moment where they're like, oh, yeah, we're going out. So the Nazi soldier's like, you're going. Oh, I'm on a foot of whirlwind. I want to be the Nazi. Oh, I don't like the sound of that. Oh, that's concerning. Oh, no. All right. Fine, you be the Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> you be the Nazi. Okay. Go on. Where are you going? Oh, I am off on a whirlwind tour of South America. I must entertain my fans. And who is this man wearing a trench coat and fake moustache? He is my ballet instructor. I need his help to perfect my pirouette. Prove it! So in my head, in this moment, Jacques, I can't decide which is funnier. He either does a perfectly flawless, like, 30-minute routine. Well, he is French. Or he just, like, 
holds his arm above his head and awkwardly walks around ha. in a circle. And either one is hilarious yeah. to me. We have better ballet dancers in Germany, but you seem legit. Off you go! I like that your German Nazi officer kind of transformed into the Knights of Knee guy from... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's where my, um... <laughs> everything I we know are about... the Knights who say Heil Hitler! Everything I know... <laughs> everything I know about German accents and faking them for humor it comes from Monty Python and then just Mitchell and Webb. <laughs> so, to get information out, apart from faking ballet dancers... <laughs> Jacques and Josephine wrote notes on troop movement I- movements in invisible ink on sheet music, and Josephine hid photographs under her dress. The Nazi soldiers were seemingly starstruck by Josephine and paid little attention to Jacques. First, the duo made their way to Spain and Portugal, which Hannah's written as Spahn, where <laughs> Josephine continued to attend parties at embassies to learn information, which she then pinned to her bra with a safety pin. She later wrote that it was dangerous, but... Who would dare search Josephine Baker to the skin? In January 1941, Josephine was ordered to head to Morocco and set up a transmission centre in Casablanca. Play it again, Sam. I'm thinking of the other most famous scene from Casablanca, which I feel like neither of us have actually seen. I have not. I did buy the DVD. We should watch it. We should watch it. Yeah. I don't know. Josephine used ridiculous items in her luggage to turn away any suspicious eyes. To Morocco, not only did she bring 28 pieces of luggage, but she also brought some mice, yep. a Great Dane, like Alfie, and a whole bunch of pet monkeys. Yeah, a barrel of them. So again, what sort... No, she didn't. What sort of self-respecting spy brings a whole bunch of monkeys with her? Clearly, this woman is a crazy diva who has no concept of what is really going on in the world. So just as Josephine diverted attention away from Jacques, her ridiculous belongings diverted attention away from Josephine's true... T- purpose in travelling. Where did she get the monkeys? I don't know, but I also like to what imagine kind of monkeys? that the monkeys were actually trained French resistance. <laughs> <laughs> like, which is like fake fur on them. But do you know what kind of monkeys they were? No, I don't know what kind of monkeys. Because if they were chimpanzees, there was a glut of chimpanzees in Europe around this time because they were like the big thing to experiment on. Yeah. Which I learned about when I was researching AIDS. No, I anyway. Know. They were monkeys. Chimpanzees are apes. I know, but like, people tend to use it interchangeably. Yeah, let's be yeah. real. Contrary to what many Americans often think of when picturing World War II, North Africa was a hotspot of fighting in World War II. Why, you might ask, when all the countries involved in World War II are in Europe? Who's that at the door? Oh, it's our good friend colonialism here to ruin the party again. Hi, when- guys. <laughs> when- it should have a British accent, let's be real here. When Italy officially declared war, because they were on the Axis side at this point, on the 10th of June 1940, the British forces based in Egypt launched an attack on Fort Capuzzo in Libya, which was at that point held by the Italians. And had been held by the Libyans for a lot longer. Yeah. In September 1940, the Italians invaded Egypt, and in December, the British, Indian, South Rhodesian, Australian and Free French forces captured around 138 Italians... 138,000, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like, 138? That's not very impressive. I could cater for that many people. <laughs> Just do something light with pasta. 138,000 Italians and Libyans as part of Operation Compass. Back to the question of why North Africa. Not only was it colonialism. Woo! I mean, boo! That's not a good thing to woohoo. But it was also the strategic importance of the Suez Canal waved to the evergreen as we go past. Hong Kong. Control of North Africa and the Mediterranean Sea would provide the victorious side with easy access to... Supplies from the Middle East and Asia via the Suez, which is why it was built Especially in the Especially the Dardanelles of World War II. Yes. Yeah. So the technology of World War II relied heavily on oil, 
which of course comes primarily from the Middle East. So if you want your tanks to run around and be a tank, you need oil to make that happen. If you want happen. your planes to fly around and be a plane, you need oil. Yep. If you want your humans to run around and be human, don't give them oil. <laughs> The Suez was also a crucial transport route for troops from the British colonies in the Southern Hemisphere, like India or Australia. Or New Zealand. I feel like we haven't mentioned them for a while. That's true, that's a good point. And I'm point. just so... I love New Zealand so much right now. I mean, they're, they're better like letting than us. us back in. <laughs> they're better than us in many ways. Morocco, on the northwest coast of Africa, was controlled by Vichy France when Josephine and Jacques made the country their home base. If Josephine could infiltrate the upper echelons of Moroccan society as she had in Paris, she will be able to pass on important information that would aid the Allies in winning control of North Africa and, as a result, the Suez and get the sexy oil. She worked with the French resistance to secure Moroccan passports for Jews fleeing the Nazis and the Vichy French, who were only too happy to adopt Nazi-inspired anti-Semitic policies and ideologies. Though Morocco wasn't really better for Jewish people, we have to assume that having Moroccan passports make it a little easier to travel to other countries. She also again spent time at parties seducing high-up officials, including Tami al-Galawi, the Pasha of Marrakesh, a Pasha being roughly the equivalent to a knight in England. In June 1941, Josephine suffered a miscarriage, which required a hysterectomy, and she was hospitalised with resulting peritonitis, which is essentially an inflammation of the stomach and the abdominal wall, which can lead to death without quick treatment. Josephine was in hospital for 18 months and had to undergo several surgeries, and her illness was so severe that one American newspaper mistakenly published her obituary. To this, Josephine replied, There has been a slight error. I'm much too busy to die. Nice. And indeed she was. Lying in her hospital bed, Josephine received visits from American diplomats and French resistance members. I mean, maybe that's why it took so long for her to get better, to be honest. Like, you know, if you're sick, just let your bodies heal, people. Don't soldier on. At least the Liberal Party wasn't like, can you explain exactly when the ambulance was called and what kind of stairs she fell down? No, I cut that bit out of this episode. Oh. They were doing that. Okay, yeah. cool. In November 1942, Allied forces arrived in Morocco as part of Operation Torch, forcing the Vichy regime in North Africa to surrender to the Allies. Hooray! Woo-hoo. The Vichy French forces in North Africa joined with the Free French forces and fought on the side of the Allies for the rest of the war. It was also around this time that Josephine was discharged from hospital. Josephine spent the rest of the war performing for Allied troops in North Africa, touring from Algiers to Jerusalem. During this time, she raised more than 3 million francs for the Free French Army. On one memorable occasion, Josephine began performing for American troops in Algiers when the Germans started to bomb them, as Germans are wont to do. Everyone around her took cover, but Josephine instead went to the buffet for a bombing snack. Eventually, she took cover with everyone else, but that didn't stop her eating her ice cream. Honestly, if it was a really good chocolate mousse, I'd probably uh, Today, I learned I am also, again, <laughs> Josephine. On the 25th of August, 1944, the Free French Army and US troops joined French resistance fighters to finally overthrow the occupying German forces in France. Josephine returned to Paris a few months later. She was horrified by the conditions the French had lived through under German occupation and sold her jewellery and other possessions to raise money for food and coal for Parisians. For her actions in the war, Josephine was made an officer of the Women's Auxiliary of the French Air Force, was awarded the Croix de Guerre and the Rosette de la Resistance, and de Gaulle made her Chevalier of the Légion d'Honneur. After the war, after the war, Josephine made France her permanent home, but travelled back to the US on several occasions. In 1951, Josephine embarked on a tour of the US and faced the intense segregation she had left behind decades ago. She refused to accept these conditions and used her celebrity to agitate for change. Josephine attended rallies and wrote letters to public figures about racial injustice, particularly the case of Willie McGee, a black man in Mississippi sentenced to death for raping a white woman despite dubious evidence. This was very common during this period Mm -hmm. and was one of the 
like this idea of like even annoying a white woman looking at her wrong. Mm-hmm. That's why Emmett Till. That was their reasoning for brutally, brutally murdering mm-hmm. him, which is also seen as a key point in the civil rights movement yep. in America. So Josephine was really outspoken for the cause of civil rights. She refused to perform anywhere that segregated audience, yet Josephine herself was often barred from entering hotels and restaurants due to her skin colour, and in one incident charged the owner of the Stork Club in New York City for failing to serve her. This accusation of racism towards the owner finally earned Josephine a place on an FBI watch list and the loss of her US citizenship rights for over a decade. But she also made friends with Grace Kelly during it, so that's a plus. Also, Grace Kelly was Princess of Morocco, so chances are... No, she was Princess of Monaco. Oh, fuck! Leave that in, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) Grace Kelly comes up again, too, so... (laughs) I want to be like like Grace Grace Kelly! Josephine returned to France, where, in the early 1950s, she began adopting children from all over the world. Her family would become known as the, quote, Rainbow Tribe. You know who else did that? Jim Jones! Yes. I know. Oh, no! I read about it today. (laughs) (laughs) The first first two of 12 children she adopted came from a Japanese orphanage. A lot of orphans in Japan after World War II. Yeah. After Josephine wrote to the manager that she wanted him to quote find f- find for me a Japanese baby. Oh. I want to adopt five little two-year-old boys, a Japanese, a black from South Africa, an Indian from Peru, a Nordic child and an Israelite. End quote. Who would quote live together like brothers. I'm s- I wish quote. you could all see my face right now. <laughs> and mine. So if this all sounds a bit dodge, it was. Josephine seems to have treated her children kind of like a performance. Um, so with her fourth husband, Josephine brought Le Milans, a 15th century castle which included a motel, bakery, cafes, a jazz club, a mini golf course and a wax museum of Josephine's life. Um, and it was in the French countryside. So she bought it to raise her children. But she turned the castle into a tourist attraction. So on one hand, some have suggested that this was a political message trying to prove to all the racists that an African-American girl born into poverty in St. Louis could make it big. Yeah, but the estate was definitely problematic. Uh, Not only was... And again, I think even back then they were like, that's a bit fucked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not only was Josephine frequently absent in her children's lives, um, but people could visit to see the various attractions, including Josephine's exotic pets and her children. Mm. Apparently, tourists would line up and watch the kids through a large window, which is, it's just like a light. Um, the children would also perform songs for paying visitors. I mean, Josephine grew up doing that. So yep. maybe to her, in a way, it's kind of normal. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Edith Piaf as well. It's not, in her head, it's not exploitation. Yeah. It's she's proving this message. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, yeah, her heart's in the right place, but... Yeah, yeah. so this is it's actually a bit of a trend in the early Cold War. Um, so there are a few examples of <laughs> so different So fashionable! Americans. Josephine Baker! Jim Jones! Yeah. You know, normal people! <laughs> like, literally, Jim Jones is one of the examples. Yeah. Um, there was other religious couples as well, of people, Americans, um, adopting children from all, from all the different continents, collecting them, like Pokemon. Uh, these have been called UN families because they are the United Nations uh, and were a way for some Americans to kind of fight communism and division by quote-unquote proving people of different races could live happily in a Western system. It's all very sketchy. Um, but this sort of political message does seem to be Josephine's motivating factor behind the adoptions, um, although we, we, we can't discount the fact that 
she was unable to bear any children of her own biologically, and I don't know how much of that also came into play mm. in her wanting children. Because um, she did have a few pregnancies, um, and the final one was the miscarriage while she was in Morocco. So maybe she really wanted children, and then maybe she was like, I can have this, like, message to share if I get them from different places and they look different. I go to Ikea. I pick out a Japanese child. Yeah, Um, I agree with you. Like, I get what you're saying. You know, it was very much, but it was very much focused on the message. It's like, it's like intentions in a way are are selfish, but her heart is pure. Maybe, yeah. Uh, Because she, like, so she wanted to adopt a child from Israel and they went, actually, we're having so much trouble getting children here because of the war. Um, that you can't take one. Have you checked in the back? So... Have you looked in the back? Okay, I'll go look in the back. Go stands in the fucking lunchroom so for five minutes. Because she couldn't get a child from Israel. Yeah. She found a French boy. Yeah, as you do. I'm sure this will end perfectly normally. She adopted a French orphan. Yeah. She named him Moses. Yeah, as you do. Then in French. Very normal. Uh, and decided that he would be raised Jewish. That's so normal. Yeah. I hope... Oh, she would have had him circumcised. Which is... Fine if that's how you want to be. So, uh... like, she dressed her children up based on their, like, nationalities or ethnicities. Um, So, it's... I need a cigarette. It's a really complicated moment in her life compared to everything else. Yeah, I think it's also, in a funny way, because a lot of time I... With these Rainbow families, and you see Mm. this with a lot of international adoptions, it used to be that you would not talk about the kids' heritage at Mm. all. And you just pretend, oh, we don't see colour, we don't see race, we're just going to raise them in, like, our society. Mm-hmm. But it is important to let them be in touch with their, like, like ethnicity yep. and their heritage. Um, so it's about fun. And, like, Josephine, weirdly ahead of her time in some ways. Really weirdly, weirdly fucked in others. All right. Yeah. So, um, 1963 was the um, centenary of the Emancipation Proclamation when Abraham Lincoln declared that all slaves in Confederate states were forever free. And it was in 1963 that Josephine returned to America to speak at the famous March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. The march took place on 28th of August 1963 with over 200,000 attendees. And this was the march where Martin Luther King Jr. famously delivered his I Have a Dream speech. So even though it had been 100 years since all slaves had been declared free, um, institutionalised racism and injustice towards black Americans was still rampant with segregation, incredible voter disenfranchisement and job discrimination. The March on Washington demanded of President Kennedy a comprehensive civil rights bill. Dressed in her French women's Air Force Auxiliary uniform, Josephine was the only woman to officially speak at the march. When she took to the podium, Josephine told marchers that she had, quote, always taken the rocky path, end quote, in life, and now wanted to use her own power as a celebrity to make things easier for those who followed her. Though some worried that Josephine had become too French and was disconnected from the issue of civil rights in America, Josephine told marchers that she was so proud to stand there with them, quote, after so many long years of struggle fighting here and elsewhere for your rights, our rights, the rights of humanity, the rights of man, end quote. She reminded the crowd that though she had met with kings, queens and presidents, she could not walk into a hotel in America to get a cup of coffee. Josephine was such a powerful figure that when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on the 4th of April 1968, his wife Coretta Scott King asked Josephine to consider taking over as leader of the civil rights movement. Josephine declined, stating that her children were too young and needed her around, which... Sure, Josephine. I don't know if Coretta Scott King would have actually liked Josephine Baker as a person because they were a religious family, the Kings. Yep. He's Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, whatever. Sure, Josephine, sure. Remember how Edith Piaf totally sang La Internationale when she was a kid? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So Josephine eventually returned to Les Milandes, um, where she struggled to pay for the upkeep of the giant estate. In 1964, her electricity was cut off. So Josephine turned to the public for help after she had been peeling the gold leaf tiles off the banana wall, banana wall, <laughs> <laughs> bathroom wall to give to the bank. Many celebrities stepped in. Bruja Bardot appealed to the public to help Josephine, while figures such as Zsa Zsa Gabor and Pope Paul VI. <laughs> yeah, right? Why is Pope Paul VI turning to Josephine Baker? Hawaii sailor. So that Josephine could keep her house. But it wasn't enough, and Les Milandes was seized in 1969 as Josephine was unable to pay her bank loan. At the distress of being thrown out of her house, Josephine suffered a heart attack. This, possibly combined with lingering effects of her peritonitis, permanently weakened Josephine. Also, if she's got no uterus, that might be fucking with her hormones too. Hmm. Yeah, and they wouldn't have they had no hormone replacement therapy yeah, at this point. That's true. So Josephine and her children, now homeless, were aided by Princess Grace, uh, Grace Kelly, who gave Baker a home in Monaco. I believe you mean Morocco. No, Hannah. no, I mean Monaco. Okay. <laughs> Grace helped Josephine's children find places in schools. Others went to live with their father, now Josephine's ex. In later life, her children rarely commented on their mother. Most appear to have happy memories of their childhood itself, but what they feel about Josephine is kind of hard to tell. Um, in one confusing anecdote, when Josephine's son, Jerry, came out as gay, Josephine criticised him in front of his siblings and then banished him to live with his father in Buenos Aires. Like, I know I fucked Frida Kahlo, but that's a step too far. Like, it's one of those weird inconsistencies. I do wonder if it's like... There's this thing where it's like bisexual women can sort of. There's this whole conflict that isn't really. shouldn't be a thing about passing privilege in the bisexual community. Mm. Maybe she's like, because I'm bisexual, I ended up with men. I'm allowed to flirt with women and have sex with women, but I'm going to end up with a man. Mm. But this is a complete deviation from what a man should be. Oh no, don't send me to Buenos Aires. <laughs> to be fair, there are probably a lot of Nazis in Buenos Aires. So, Grace Kelly also paid Josephine to perform at her Red Cross Gala. This helped Josephine get back into performing. In 1973, <laughs> that's a good James Bond song, she again toured the US to a very different reception. At, at 67, Josephine performed at Carnegie Hall and received a standing ovation before even beginning her act. In 1975, she put on Josephine Abobino, 1975, in French, in Paris, celebrating her 50 years in show business, financed by, financed by Princess Grace and Prince Ranier, as well as Jackie Kennedy. On opening night, she performed 34 songs to a rapturous, star-studded crowd, but only a few days later, Josephine suffered a brain hemorrhage. She was found in her bed, surrounded by newspaper reviews of her show, praising her performance. Josephine died on April 12, 1975, and was given full military honours at her funeral, while thousands lined the streets to honour her. Josephine has been inducted into the St. Louis Walk of Fame, the Hall of Famous Missourians, the Legacy Walk in Chicago, and the Rainbow Honour Walk in San Francisco. She probably wouldn't appreciate that last one, let's be real here. She has a street named after her in Paris, and an avenue in St. Louis. She also has a swimming pool on the banks of the Seine. Also, in an excellent call-out to our last episode on Zarina Alexandra, Josephine appeared in the musical number Paris Holds the Key to Your Heart from Anastasia. There you go. I never know. I always, with her pet cheetah. I'm always just looking at Freud, to be honest. So, <laughs> like, there he goes. So, <laughs> Quick, don't let him get away. She was also in a lot of other movies. Like, her, you know, her persona. Not her personally, but the She's character. She's an iconic of, figure. Yeah, the figure of Josephine Baker has also been in lots of other movies and books and plays and things. But the most mm. important one is Anastasia. I feel like it's like, nowadays, if people don't even know Josephine Baker by name, they know the image of the, the black lady mm. in the banana skirt. Yeah. And for some, it might 
fair enough, you might see it as an image of incredibly racist tropes mm-hmm. and cliches, but it's because I, I Googled banana skirt trying to get a picture for the episode yep. until you, I realised you'd made one already. And there's people with like Halloween costumes yep. that look like the, the banana well, Beyonce skirt. Beyonce has done a few mm. costumes that like pay homage to the banana skirt. Yeah. Beyonce apparently has um, done quite a few tributes to Josephine. That's really cool. Yeah, like in various different ways. Like um, in one time she did a version of Josephine's dance and yet another time she's worn like the banana skirt yeah. and things. And it's like a reclamation in a way. Yeah. And, like we we're not we're not the right people to plus any judgment or critique of that. Definitely so not. like whatever. So, well not whatever, but you know yeah. what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> she's such an interesting you you feel like at the start you're like yes Josephine, yes Josephine, yes Josephine. Yes Queen Why are you explaining children, Josephine? I know, and it's like mm, I'm trying to think of other celebrities who did that because we're not quite as because Today, there's a lot of, like, debate online about, like, mummy bloggers and stuff like mm. we were talking about. Who And, like, is it exploitative to have yeah. your... And I would argue, yes. Kids can't consent to having their... Fo- mm. Like, the occasional snap on Facebook, I'm chill yeah. with. Like, on post photos especially. Yeah. Um, because we never had to deal with that when we were kids yeah. in the 90s. Or the 80s or 70s, 60s, 50s, mm. 40s. Um, but in this case, it's such an extreme form of exploitation. Mm. So even though they would have had probably everything in the world to, like, look forward to and all this at the point at that point money yeah. and security and fame and comfort... It's, is it a happy, is it a good childhood mm. if everything materially is provided but you're not getting emotionally sus- sustained? Yeah. So, like, they they haven't spoken out. The children really haven't spoken about their childhood. So yeah. we can't really know what they think. Like, two did in one interview. And the others all beat them up. And they were, like, they were, one was, like, pretty just generic, like, oh, she made mistakes, but yeah. all mothers do. Like it, and so I was like, well, we don't know what they think because, yeah. you know, fair enough. They and don't each wanna... of them could think something different yeah, as well. Yeah, like, there's 12 different children. That Moses feels a bit weird. Like... Poor Moses. So, you know, it's like... But then what she did in the war is amazing. Yeah. Like, I just love her audacity mm. of just, you know, I'm going around with a pet cheetah. I'm, you know, making history as a black woman. Yeah. I'm eating an ice cream. I'm Fuck eating an Nazis. ice cream when the Nazis are bombing hey, me. It's the Luftwaffe. I'm going to lick I'm making Lufter. friends with Grace Kelly. Like, so much of her life, you're like, amazing, I love this. And then you're like, oh... And so, yeah. I think it's like because she's still of her era in many ways. Yeah. yeah. And I think she's a really good example of historical figures that are complicated. Yeah. And like, we, she did good things, but she also did things that were like, that's not good. I think on the on the balance, she probably did way and way more. Yeah, exactly. Bad. But the trouble is, obviously, a lot of people, especially online, feel there's no room for that kind of complexity. And it's yeah. like, unfortunately, everyone is incredibly complex. No one is black and white. So, uh, yeah, apart from the obvious example that I'm not saying the name of. Yes. Tony Abbott, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> William McMahon. Oh no! Even though he brought Julian McMahon into the world, and we all know he made our Danny Minogue quite happy for a few years. <laughs> he was excellent in Charmed. Teenage yeah. Me did enjoy, but um, I enjoyed Josephine Baker. I enjoyed researching this. What I'm actually really enjoying is when I pulled that face when you talk about swimming pools. Is there's a, actually a big gap in African American communities in the U.S. even today? Black people can't swim. Yeah, because deliberately they were excluded from swimming pools and even after segregation was made illegal um new york was designed in a way that stopped black people getting to the pools and to the beach mm. and stuff they have beaches in new york probably um they have a harbor they've got a river and i know all of the stacks swim in the river you can land a plane in it <laughs> and there's lots of bodies there I know anyway, um, so the idea of like this black woman who did work to overcome mm. these incredibly injustices put upon black people in yeah. both France and the US to have a swimming pool named after her I think is also a really cool. interesting yeah. choice and I do love the the, part, the point that was made about her mansion 
being like, this is showing like where she came from yeah. to where she ended up is amazing. Mm. I was watching this really... I was reading it. I can't remember. Especially for the era, obviously. This idea of um, black artists, especially in hip-hop, when they really flaunt their wealth when they've made it because mm. it's a way of saying, like, fuck you, yeah. made it. Fuck you. Yeah. And then so when you have white artists co-opting that look, it becomes a lot more problematic because mm. it's like you came from privilege. Yeah. You don't need to pretend you came from yeah. the bottom. We know you didn't. So it's more grotesque when they're the ones putting on these affectations of black culture and, like, throwing money around. I'm talking about Ariana Grande and Seven Rings. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> In, like, a totally, like, opposite way. It's, like, a lot of female, um, a lot of women who get doctorates. Mm will consciously make a choice to use doctor as their title and they'll put it on their Twitter and in, like, their books and stuff because people don't assume women can get doctorates. Yeah. And so, like, there's that assumption. So when a man does it, it's wanky. <laughs> yeah, because it's, like, it's not, but, <laughs> but it, it is. is. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's obviously. The if you, you have, you've like, earned this thing, you're allowed to use it, but... Yeah, because you hear all these stories about women who have doctorates and their husbands or their partners who mm -hmm. are misters that don't have a doctorate, and then, like, they'll be it's like, always... oh, doctor and Mrs. Yeah. Lynch or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's sort of like that kind of... You put it out there because the assumption is that you don't. Yeah, and that's why Josephine's doing it, too. Yeah, and, and you can't blame her for that yeah. at all. I mean, I wouldn't buy a fucking castle in the French countryside for the commune. I would 100% buy a cheetah if I was allowed to. I wouldn't was, buy a cheetah. If it was not ethically dubious. Yeah, yeah, like, <laughs> If the cheetah was totally happy and I had the land for a cheetah, I'd be happy to have I know, I'm just trying to picture what you would need. I'm like, I don't think so. Another cheetah? No, you get the golden retriever because they have the golden retriever for anxiety. They do. Which is so sweet. That's lovely. That's a good note to end on. That's a nice note to end on. We're always ending on dogs now, which is really, really good. I like that. That's a good thing. We hope you really enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback or want to tell us how good we are, we are on various socials at Women of War Pod. And we have a website, womenofwarpod.com. We have Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. That's yes. the important ones. Yes. Subscribe, to our, Hub, subscribe uh, to our newsletter. We will actually produce it. I'm tired. At some point. Oh, no. We will. Maybe. We're just very so busy. So we're actually touching up on... Oh, hello. We're actually touching up on France again next fortnight, which is very, very exciting. Oh, yes, so, we are too. Um, but in a very, very, very different context. Different so context. It would be very cool to see that. I'm excited. France for once isn't the one being invaded. Yay for Nor France. Nor are they doing any invading. Yay so for France. So well done, France. Snaps to you. <laughs> um, so thanks again for listening. Hope you learned something. Hope you enjoyed yourselves. See you next time. See you next time.